The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, welcome to this episode of the Collective Whisper Podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay, and we're glad to have you back on board again for another fabulous episode. Today we have an intriguing guest, Mr. Thomas M. Ferrario. But before we get to Thomas's interview, let's talk about maybe you sharing the podcast and reviewing the podcast. We always love reviews. Tell us what you think of the show. Spread the word. There's always people interested in these kind of topics, and we really appreciate it. Okay, today I'd like to welcome Mr. Thomas M. Ferrario, a man of many talents and experiences. From his early days as a dive master exploring the depths of the ocean to his work as a skilled machinist and electrical engineer, Thomas has journeyed through a variety of projects that have taken him from the United States to the enigmatic landscapes of Bermuda and even to the heart of what was once known as Red China. But today we're here to delve into his lifelong passion, UFO research. Thomas embarked on this extraordinary journey in 1969 and it continued until 1998 when Walt Andrus, the founder of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, recognized his expertise and invited him to become a section director for MUFON. Over time, Thomas's dedication led him to serve as an assistant state director for Missouri MUFON. He co-founded the MUFON dive team alongside Debbie Ziegelmeyer and in 2006 he joined forces with the legendary Ted Phillips, one of the world's foremost researchers of UFO trace cases. In today's episode, we'll focus on Thomas M. Ferrario's partnership with the late Ted Phillips, a man who personally investigated over 3,000 documented UFO cases, spanning continents and cultures from Eastern Europe to Africa and the Soviet Union. Our main topic of discussion, Marley Woods, a mysterious UFO hotspot in Missouri. This vast remote location has been shrouded in secrecy by its owners, who highly value their privacy. Within its boundaries, structured craft, unseen forces, light balls, strange lights, agrilyphs, cattle mutilations and anomalous animals have all been reported. Ted Phillips, the pioneering investigator, was the first to study Marley Woods. In the eyes of renowned UFO researcher Jacques Vallée, Marley Woods held even greater potential for high strangeness than the famous Skinwalker Ranch. Prepare to be intrigued as Thomas Ferrario shares stories of bizarre creatures, including one with elements of a white dog, a sloth, and a polar bear, estimated to weigh a whopping 400 pounds and occasionally walking on two legs. DNA analysis on white hairs from these creatures returned as no known match. And if that's not enough, we'll also explore the Moonshaft Project, an expedition that uncovered a shocking discovery, an ancient mechanical man-made structure hidden deep underground in a cave in Slovakia. So buckle up for an unforgettable journey into the world of UFOs, mysterious creatures, and unexplained phenomena as we dive deep into the experiences and insights of Thomas M. Ferrario and his remarkable work alongside Ted Phillips. Welcome to the show, Thomas M. Ferrario. How are you, Thomas? Oh, I'm good. It's good to be here, I'll tell you. It's a pleasure for me to have you on the show. Same here. Same here. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Simon. Yes, you, you've had a very interesting life so far and, you know, lots more to come. But when we look back on everything you've done over your life and all the experiences you've had, it's a great story. And, you know, right now at the moment, before we look back into the past, are you very busy kind of with current projects? Yes, I am. Um, we're trying to pull together another project dealing with Marley Woods. Um, actually, I'm sure your fans and you're familiar with Skinwalker and beyond Skinwalker. And uh, we did film out its 
Morley Woods with Ben Hansen and UFO Witness. And you can catch that episode. It's the Nordics in the Cube. Um, we had good response out there. And unfortunately, the property owner there died, had a stroke after we got done. And uh, we lost Site 2. We're, we worked with Site 1 property owner. Actually, Beyond Skinwalker was going to be our show. And the property owner at Site 1 got his family convinced him that he thought it wasn't a wise thing to do. And I, I can go into that later. But anyway, it's good to hear that you're still ongoing with Woods and that there's more information coming out on that. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're still trying to do some things with them. And one of our team members worked with Douglas Trumbull, the man that did the special effects and close encounters and uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. And Adam, is, we're working on a feature film. We're going to start probably later this fall about Morley Woods and Ted Phillips and all of our team. So we're looking forward to getting that out. So we are busy and things are happening behind the scenes. So when we look back in your early life, for example, tell us about your early life growing up, where you were born and where you grew up and what kind of upbringing you had. Yeah, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and my family moved to a, a rural area, Herman, Missouri. And um, lived there, a very small town of just 1,100 people. And um, my family had some experiences. And I also, as a youth, had some. And, uh, you know, I got to be a trusted individual in the community to go talk to about UFOs and that type of, you know, subject matter. And uh, they knew they wouldn't be ridiculed when they came to me. So that's how I got involved. And uh, on a Sunday morning, I gave Walt Andrus uh, a phone call, which was the founder of the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, which was started in St. Louis. And um, he convinced me to become a member. So what I wanted to ask you there before you kind of got deeper into the UFO research and your career as a dive master and a machinist and all of that, how did that tie in then with UFO research? Because I imagine as a dive master, you got to explore underwater phenomena and everything. So did you train as a dive master as a youngster or, you know, when did you start your diving career? Uh, I started as a youngster and just started working with a dive shop, a local dive shop and assisted them. And then years later, I didn't know how they would come into play, but uh, a friend of mine, Debbie Ziegelmeyer, which is the state director for MUFON now in Missouri, her and I started a MUFON dive team uh, to dive to give MUFON the resources to dive on objects that were seen, and that included farm ponds, deep water, and um, so that it went full circle, you know. In a lot of things, you know, the skills we have from previous careers or previous lives in our new new area of expertise can really come into play. And I imagine, you know, as the UFO phenomena became the UAP phenomena, and then you have lots of stories of underwater phenomena, there was probably lots of MUFON investigators who didn't have those dive skills. So you were a great person to turn to in those instances. Yes, yes, it really, you know, it gave us, it gave MUFON the 
the credibility and uh, some of the expertise to get out and investigate UAPs. Because I suppose for years, through propaganda, through television, movies, we've always been led to believe, you know, they come from the skies. But what they don't really never have kind of looked at is they may come from the skies, but it's where they go to. And when you consider with all the sightings and around San Diego and, you know, lots of water around the world, lots of oceans, it kind of makes more sense now. The ocean is a, is a really vast place and it's a great place to hide, isn't it? I will tell you that we believe over the years that two thirds of UFO cases have water as a common factor. So that we felt was really a uh, great aid for us to be able to do that. I imagine for lots of investigators, they may have a passion for this and they may have a keen curiosity. But once you join MUFON, you really join a network and a community and you're given leads to work with and cases to investigate. So I'm sure when you were introduced to MUFON, it opened up so many doors for you too, no? Right. It, it really did. And I met people I will tell you, I had no imagine. I couldn't imagine in a million years I'd work with such as Ted Phillips, uh, that worked with Alan Hynek, and uh, you know I was trained by an Air Force captain, Jim Cross, a Korean War veteran. So I, in, I never in a million years uh, thought I would be working with that caliber of people. You know, like when you were introduced to Ted Phillips, I think that was two thousand and six. Was Ted Phillips someone who wanted to work with somebody? You can imagine with a lot of these guys, they're kind of sometimes lone wolves, you know, and they maybe don't want someone to help them because they have their own way of doing it. So was that difficult to integrate yourself into his world? Uh, yeah, it really was. And uh, because of Bruce Whitteman and the MUFON conference, he had Ted as a speaker and I was working with Bruce and I, I approached Ted and believe me, so many people offered Ted, wanted to be out working with him. And I knew of his project, Marley Woods, and I offered my services, which was at the time a practical one electrician. And he picked me up on that. And uh, and we became, we formed a close bond, became close friends. And then Ted formed a small team, uh, SIU team, he called it out there. And, um, and we did incredible things out there. And, uh, you know, it was really, again, it was such an opportunity to work with this man. He was a true legend in his field. What do you say to someone like Ted Phillips, even just to pique his interest, to get him to look at you? Because you have all these other people and they're like, oh, Ted, I have some uh, proposition for you or I have some interesting ideas. But then you come along and you say, listen, I have this skill I can give you. Was it more the skill or was it more your personality that drew him to you? A, I, a little bit of both, I truly feel. I asked some questions. I feel they were the right ones from... Again, for the electrical, my background, you know, and uh, he did a lecture on and he covered how he thought fre frequencies were involved in this phenomena. And I guess I asked the, some sensible questions to him and then I offered my services. So that's how we initially formed a bond and we went to work together. Tell us the process of working with him in the beginning, because did you have to kind of prove yourself? Did you have to, did, did, uh, did you feel like you were in the way sometimes? <laughs> Quite honestly, I did, you know, and uh, he had me out there at the site, at the research center. I was putting up, climbing old windmills, putting up security cameras, running wires. And, um, you know, it was, he was an incredible man and he had a beautiful sense, a dry sense of humor that, 
when Ted was on the lecture circuit, I've never seen anybody better. He could interject humor and uh, lead you on, and you didn't even have a clue at the time what he would, you know, he would test you in so many ways. Um, but there was a period, I will say, you know, an, an initiation period that you went through, everybody went through with Ted, that uh, if you made it through that, then then you were okay. <laughs> I think, you know, when we meet people like this in our lifetime and they're clever and, you know, they're very intuitive as well about people. And, I, you know, from, from what I've read and seen about Ted Phillips, he was a very intuitive character. And that helped him investigate cases because I know from having spoken to Casey Page, formerly Casey Grabowski and Earl Grey, other MUFON investigators. And you know this yourself, when you're dealing with people who are telling you stories, you have to first kind of garner, are they full of shit? Are they coming to you with different angles? Or is there some genuine story here, don't you? Absolutely. And you you do, after a time, build up a, uh, you know, you can weed that out. You have a process that there is a process that you're trained to use on people and eye contact. And so you, you do. But I will tell you that uh, unlike the popular belief, very few people fabricate stories and lie in this field. It's, it's, it's very rare. Um, so, but, but, you know, when dealing with Ted and, and people that he dealt, you know, one of Ted's friends was, uh, you know, Jacques Vallée, uh, came out and worked with us at Marley. So there again, I had no idea I would ever be working with the caliber of people, of Jacques Vallée in the field with Ted. Um, so it, it was an incredible experience and opportunity, I will tell you. And, um, it rivaled and exceeded, even Jacques Vallée was out there, said he thought Marley Woods exceeded the high strangeness at Skinwalker. So that was saying quite a bit. <laughs> Let's kind of get into Marley Woods. And when you got to work with Ted and you started kind of experiencing what happened in Marley Woods, first of all, working with Ted on a, and I don't know, was it a daily basis, weekly basis, how often you work together? But was it one of those things where he had a process that he always used or he changed that a lot? Ted had a unique capability of, uh, in his bag of tricks and tools, he could fit, you know, Ted was a nuts and bolts man in the beginning. He didn't want to go into the paranormal, but I will tell you that the one thing that we came around away with at the end of this research there, that it's all one and the same thing, the paranormal ufology, um, it's all the same animal as Ted would phrase it. So you were always dealing, and this intelligence we worked with was always one step ahead of you. Uh, and I've, I've advised people at Skinwalker, and they, they've come away with that now. They know that uh, whenever you think you got something nailed down or you're on top of this, it'll teach you who, who's in control and who's the boss. And, uh, and, you know, even at Marley, we worked initially. We had a, had a relationship with Robert Bigelow, the first owner that bought it from the property the original property owners at Skinwalker. And we worked with Robert Bigelow and Bigelow Aerospace. And um, we had a close relationship with them for a short time. It didn't work out. And, uh, but, and then I am friends. I am communication with the directors, all the people at Skinwalker now. So we kind of go back and forth. They kind of, at times, pump me for information that relates to what they're doing. And, uh, but there's a lot of similarities there. And, uh, I will tell you it's, it just covers, you know, cryptid activity, the unseen force, light balls, structured craft, 
crop circles, cattle mutilation, horse mutilation. So it's just incredible what what occurs at this ranch. It really is. When we think about it, you know, for for people who watch the Skinwalker phenomenon on TV and for people who've looked into Marley Woods and, you know, and it would be great one day if they went further down the road with, you know, more TV work on Marley Woods, similar to Skinwalker, you know, that would be amazing. And for yourself, of course, to be honest, because, you know, you're, you're the main man now when it comes to Marley Woods. So let's go back to the first experience in Marley Woods. It's not necessarily for you or for Ted, but the first person who noticed something strange. What was that? You know, it goes back several generations, and we actually think it probably goes back into the Native American presence that was there. Um, but the, the first activities were the light ball phenomena, a thing they called twinkle lights, which were a, a pattern of lights that covered the whole field. The unseen force which exhibits great some great amount of energy at times, knocking steel gates down on log chains, pulling hinge pins out of oak posts, knocking people down, injuring people. The light beam activity, which Ted and I experienced ourselves and one other team member that actually did physical damage to us, sort of like the people at Skinwalker have had physical effects from us, I'm sure you're aware of. So it is a real phenomenon, and it, it, it's nothing to be fooled with. It does injure people at times. So you always have to go in this with that mindset that, you know, it's not a game. You could be injured. And uh, so it's an intelligence that's always ahead of you. I, I would just That's the one thing I got to emphasize, that. You know, sometimes when people talk about the paranormal, they use the word malevolent. But when we talk about UFO, it's kind of um, ufology and phenomena like that. Sometimes the word intelligence is used. But like you said, if they're one and the same, that intelligence could be malevolent, no? Yes, and we've experienced both sides of it at Marley. We've experienced a, a presence that was more benign, and we've experienced, I, I just, lack of a better description, the dark side, where uh, people have been knocked down, injured. Ted and I had been injured. Uh, and we truly believe that most of the culprit that we dealt with was microwave radiation, uh, such as you've heard of the Havana syndrome. And uh, But the microwave auditory effect is a true thing. And, and even when we were filming out with Ben Hansen, I had a piece of equipment. I felt it was my duty to protect them. And here at three in the morning, I had a piece of equipment, just 1.6 gigahertz and above that range in the microwave area. And uh, three times this piece of equipment, it had an audible cue and visual cue, and it went off and it would go from green, yellow and the red area briefly, which red, you better be getting out of that. But you're dealing in a field. There's no power lines, no structure, miles from anything at 3 a.m. in the morning. Now, what does that, you know? Uh but I, I truly feel it was just letting us know, me in particular, that it was still there and it was still capable. If it wanted to hurt us, it could. And uh, fortunately, no one was injured that night. But the crew, Ben and Melissa Tittle that was there and the, the camera crew, they were shook up when they were there, quite frankly. <laughs> if something is malevolent, right? and it exists in either another uh, parallel dimension or through portals, you know, so it, it could coexist with us without us knowing it's being there. But then what stops that malevolent force or presence 
from actually like killing people or is it playing with us? I, I truly believe it, it plays with us. And I will say the one other definite thing we came away with in Marley that it used fear because we can come up with no other reason for some of the things it did out there, this high strangeness. We truly believe it was just to generate fear. Now, does it feed off that fear or it just uses it as a tool for manipulation? I think it's a bit of both. Uh, because so many times the horse mutilation that we had an extreme event, uh, cattle mutilation, deer mutilation, uh, some of the craft, the skinwalkerish type events out there. Believe me, we had in Marley, we had skinwalker type creatures that were seen by the caretaker and shot at. He shot at them, no effect, of course. So um, it, I truly believe that fear is a motivation to generate that. And um, But it, it, you're dealing with, you know, there again, an intelligence that's capable of, of doing what it wants to do with you. So if you kind of think of, and I'm sure you got really deep into this with Ted, and you have to be careful about, how will I put it, the results you put out there as well, because, you know, there's lots of people in the community who will say, no, that's not true, and they will dispute things. So I'm sure over the years with yourself and Ted there, you found different results at different times. So you form different opinions, don't you? Yeah, you, you really do. And the the thing that it gets you get into an area, and believe me, it's Ted had a little falling out initially with even Alan Hynek because Alan became he formed went into the paranormal more towards the end, and Ted actually had a falling out with that with Alan because he didn't want to go there. And in the end days, Ted, I will tell you, was exactly where Alan was and Jock Fillet is in so many instances that they formed um, that. This is phenomena is dimensional and it gets into the paranormal aspect, uh, you know, and there again, Ted said, if I would have mentioned the word portal in my early years, I wish you would have just smacked me. <laughs> we seen three portals out in Marley, one in particular, we tried to investigate and we found out unique aspects of that by trying to investigate it. But um, so you're always dealing with that aspect of it. And believe me, a lot of people, when you go into paranormal, it almost gets into the religious area. And uh, we've experienced that. And of course, I will tell you, had I not been with Ted Phillips and people of that caliber, uh, they would have thrown rocks at me uh, because a great deal of ufologists, don't, they don't like to interject religion or paranormal in any of this. But we, we proved it in so many realms at Marley that this is interdimensional and paranormal. And when you, when you deal in that, Anything is possible. You see, that's always been the thing with ufology and the study of paranormal behavior. For people who have been studying it, they kind of distance themselves from the church and from religion because they want it to be taken seriously and they want it to be based on science. But then the ironic part about this is after years of research, they realize that there are links because... In lots of religion, whether it be pagans or Christians or whatever, they have their own fears and superstitions, which are based on probably things to do with the paranormal and with ufology. Because when we look at the old native drawings, the hieroglyphs, and we see the pictures of craft 
are beings from other planets that we would say were UFOs or UAPs, you can see how they can be all linked. But like you said, the big thing is fear, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. And there again, through my experiences with people like Bruce Whitteman, the first state director of MUFON, um, and I had a unique in the religious aspect of it. We had a, a gentleman named uh, Reverend John Schroeder in St. Louis, which was a investigator and move on. And there again, people don't like to join the two, you know, and connect them. But he was one of the greatest investigators and he had worked with the Vatican. And I had other people that I had known. And through Bruce back in 2000, uh, because MUFON started in St. Louis, Bruce was approached by the government and uh, they wanted to do actually a start downloading or do a uh, a kind of a, and I, I don't expect them, believe me, ever to do this really, but they approached Bruce and they wanted to start the process of at Area 51 to give some of the data and try to work a, a project. And they got some of the press and they got Bruce and Bruce asked if I'd accompany him. And then things happened. They backed out of the deals they saw often did. But but through the people we worked with that were in the government, and I, I didn't used to like to share this too much, but I do now because a lot of it's going to come out. But I will tell you, our, our government is in close. Uh, the one connection I never really would have dreamed of, but uh, one of the places our government works with is the Vatican. They're in a close relationship as far as disclosure and when this is going to take place. So, and the Vatican knows much more. If I had one place to go on earth to prove my point, it would be down in the Vatican, not Area 51. I think all of these sectors and these, you know, the church, the states, the military, they're all going to be linked in cases like that come out because they'll say the Vatican knew about this. Because when we think about this, if the Vatican sent somebody to do an exorcism and then there's malevolent forces or paranormal forces there, maybe there are some similar forces like that are in Marley Woods or Skinwalker. And, and then it, it doesn't become about being the devil. Then it becomes about something interdimensional, no? Right, exactly. And I have one statement that is so beautiful. I, I learned this from Jacques Vallée that we worked with. And his one statement was that we have evidence that the phenomena has the ability to create a distortion of the sense of reality and to substitute artificial sensations for the real ones. And it's much more. So what that means in short is that this phenomena has the ability to, quite frankly, pull your chain, control you. And I will tell, as far as paranormal, people that ex investigate paranormal, haunted houses, um, whatever it is, always keep in mind that it has the ability to pick up on Whatever you're looking for, it will be that. If if you go in looking for a certain thing, it will perform exactly the way you want it to and be whatever you're looking for. And it, as Jacques Vallée said, it has that capability. And believe me, we proved it at Marley several times. And it played with us. <laughs> yes. And do you think that in those cases that that presence there does something to get, to garner the attention of people because you know we would imagine let's say if if something was there but didn't want to be discovered but in in Marley Woods maybe it was there waiting to be discovered and setting those kind of traps for people to come no oh yeah it was a master misdirection you know if if we get us at one end of the ranch 
through a light ball, even sometimes, you know, a structured craft, and then things would go on uh, at the other end of the ranch, that like a cattle mutilation or something really bad. That so it the misdirection and uh, and things went on in Marley. You know, uh, when Douglas Trumbull was there, he came out with a very expensive high tech piece of camera equipment he made, and we had an old cabin out there, and it was raining that night, so he put it in the cabin at the window facing north. And uh, we locked it. We put it in there. Jacques Vallée was with us. The property owner had the key. We locked the door. Next morning, we went in. Douglas was excited to see what it had captured. And we were outside yet. We heard Douglas in the cabin, and he was not very happy. He was using language we didn't wasn't accustomed to him. And we went in, and he basically asked. He said, "Who's who's screwing with us here? Are you guys doing this?" And here, this eighty eighty seven pound piece almost 90 pound piece of equipment on a heavy tripod that was locked at the window was turned 35 degrees away from the window. Now the door was locked. So what does that, you know, and, and, but he was convinced then the property owner said, I've got the only key. No one was in that room. Uh, so, and, then we had other experiences, I will tell you. Yeah, and, you know, let's look at some of the other experiences from Marley Woods. Like, so, for example, the the white dog, the sloth, the polar bear. Does it sometimes feel to you that that force or that presence creates things for you to see that maybe aren't there, but you see them as if they're real? We believe it does, and we believe at times it, it's more a case of it opening, giving these things the capability to come through a portal or come interdimensionally be there for a time period. And when they're on this side, they're as real as you and I. Ted and I, we, we found we had tracks of the white, large white animal, which the property owner estimated at three to 400 pounds. We found 16 inch long white hairs on the fence line, a uh, four strand barbed wire fence. We did microscopy on those samples. We did DNA, came back no known match. So when it's on, and we know there's not a living breeding population of these things in Marley. Uh, the only Bigfoot sighting was in near Marley Woods there. Uh, all type of little critters, as Ted called them. And, uh, uh, cryptids were seen at Marley. So we know they're not there, you know, living and breeding. And uh, But when they're there, they come through. They have that capability. And when they're there and when they're gone, we had tracks. We had three-toed tracks, 13 inches in diameter, that property owner found one morning on a pond with a thin ice coating and thin light snow. He found these 13-inch, three-toed tracks, which were like no animal in this area, started out across this pond, and they terminated in the middle of the pond. Now, he stepped on the ice thinking it could support him, and he he broke through. So this, we truly believe this thing was in the process of either coming in or out of our dimension that it's the force, because you're dealing with considerable mass and weight, you know, 13-inch, three-toed track there. But but that's not unusual at Marley. We have so many instances of that. Also, when you kind of delve deeper into the idea that these animals or creatures, cryptids, could be brought through portals. The other question then, if they are brought through portals, are they brought through portals from our planet? Like, so to speak, like if you see creatures and things that you say... Well, that animal doesn't exist in this part of the world, but it does in Antarctica or it does in Australia. So do you think 
that the things that were seen or the evidence left behind was all from creatures that are on this planet or that we know of? I really, from what we experienced, I really think that these things weren't native to now, if you go back in the prehistoric era, maybe so, but in our time frame, uh, and like our white animal, the property owner seen it through a rifle scope, and other people that had viewed this out there had commented that the what scared them about the animal was the face was like no other animal they ever saw. It had a it was like a sloth slash polar bear type animal that was seen walking on two legs as much as on all four. Now there's not many critters that do that. <laughs> and the other thing you have to question then as well that if I say to you right now, there's a portal there and something could come true. And then the first kind of question we ask in, in you know, the, the present day is we say, um, where is it coming from? Is it coming from, you know, another country? But the other question we don't really think about, is it also coming from another time? So this is the thing. So if it is interdimensional, there's three things. It could be from a different place. It could be from a different world even, but it also could be from a different time. So if that force has that capability to bring creatures from maybe a thousand years ago, who knows? Right, right. Anything's possible. You know, uh, and and there again in the Skinwalker, the original property owner that had viewed the portal there, he also had viewed a portal with using his rifle scope and he described and it was so when we heard this description, it was so similar to what had been seen in Marley. Uh, he describes this when he really pulled in on this one time on the portal, he describes it, clar- it clarified and it he actually thought he'd seen, and it was a cloudy, overcast day on his side. He thought he'd seen a bright blue sky and clouds and sunshine in through this portal on the other side. So, and we've had that exact description at Marley before. So at times you really feel like you're looking into another time in, in space. And uh, where that time and space is, we don't know. We wish we did, believe me. Uh, it has echoes of stories of the Bermuda Triangle, you know, that famous flight from Miami where the time and space was warped or bent. And, you know, as it's really interesting in the modern world now they're coming up with more explanations. And, you know, there's sometimes like I, I saw this week of the, where they... AI took the picture of Bigfoot, the famous picture, and it said that they, it has it has enhanced it so much you can see it's a man in a suit. So maybe over time, t- some things will be explained, but there's so many other things that can't be explained like those types of portals because we just maybe don't know where they go, but they're, they're there. Right? They, they absolutely are. And the thing I've learned recently in the last few years is my, I call her my sister. Uh, she's a close friend. We farmed the MUFON dive team, Debbie Ziegelmeyer. And she's the state director now, Debbie is, of MUFON in Missouri. And um, she keeps me up on the MUFON. I'm, I'm, I devoted my life to Marley Woods and Ted's work and Moonshaft. And um, I'm no longer affiliated with MUFON, but she keeps me informed. And what I will tell you is I truly believe that the veil, the interdimensional boundaries are weakening. She has informed me now in Missouri and other state directors, but Deb has told me there's like three other locations in Missouri now that are approaching the high strangeness of Marley. Now, let me tell you, that never happened before. Casey Grabowski, when she when I had her on the show, I was said to her, 
Why do you feel that America has the most sightings? I know Chile has a lot of sightings and Italy had some as well. But why do you feel in the mainstream media that when the world looks at UFOs, America is at the forefront? Do you believe that it's because of the nuclear presence or do you believe it's because there's propaganda? Why, you know, because some countries could say, well, we don't have UFOs. So why does America have UFOs? Why do you believe that is? I truly, from doing a lot of traveling in my past, I I truly believe uh, a lot of the different countries there, let's just say, of course, the Soviet Union back then, and they covered it up and hit a lot of it. Uh, Slovakia was one of Ted's projects. And let me tell you, there's things happening, our moonshaft project in Slovakia and things happening in Slovakia that are unreal. And I just, in my own experience, I worked and lived a little a short time in all places, red China, and getting to talk through my translator. Uh, I got on the subject matter with them asking questions. Uh, they wouldn't promote it, but when I'd ask them questions, they'd give me honest answers. And there was a lot of it back then in the 80s and 70s. So I will tell you, I truly believe it is worldwide. A lot of it, like you said, is covered up. And do you believe then that maybe because of Hollywood and, and mainstream media that we've had more of these movies, you know, in, in the modern world that are American based. So more of the emphasis on the United States, no? Yeah, I, I believe that's a lot of it, you know, and, and there again, it, we truly believe though, that you followed, it's, it's morphed into a new realm because Ted always felt that Along with our advanced technologies, you know, he used to do the structured craft, the the disc, the 30-foot saucers, 40, uh, several ton tonnage. He'd do, get out and do com- soil compaction tests on three late and find out these things weighed. Contrary to popular belief, they were extremely heavy. Uh, you're dealing with a lot of mass. But he felt like when our technology increased, they lowered their risk factor and they went into more of like the... ROV type activity with the light balls, even using natural elements that we're finding out, we found out like water. Um, and so they lowered the risk factor. You know, when you have a structured craft, you, you have something tangible. If you're using a light ball or light, uh, microwave energy and even hydrogen, when that's gone, it's gone. You, you don't have a piece of it. You can't grab it. It's so Ted actually felt they just lowered the risk factor. And now that's not to say at times they still use structured craft. They really do. So, um, but it, it just, it morphed into a whole different ballpark. Believe me. I suppose. What happens, you know, as the technology increased and, you know, gain new depths, probably they're looking at this and saying, okay, these guys are getting cleverer and, you know, mankind in general is improving its technology. So they, as you said, maybe have to lower the risk of being seen, being exposed. It's all very muddled in some sense, because I suppose the way we think of things and our perception, people are thinking, what do they want? What does this force want? Is it a living, breathing entity that is using tools it has? Is it something from another place? Or is it energy? Like, what do you feel it is? You know, we all have to make up our own minds about it. And I truly feel, going back and to the religious aspect of this, that it's all about control, manipulation. And uh, I, I will tell you that this gets into areas that the control, I've seen it, perform on people and and they're again using fear is it's unbelievable and you know at, at some point 
um, the, the one thing that always got me, and I could not understand with this advanced technology, I, I'd ask people like Jacques Vallée, Ted, other people, Stanton Freeman, you know, if these things are so advanced and so smart, why then is there so many crashes, you know, around the world reported of these? And I felt like a child with a with the, the logic they told me, I felt like, but the, the one answer they give me, he said, well, Tom, it's like this. We have the authority to be in this dimension on this side. They don't have the authority to be here unless we give them that. And sometimes, as far as the crashes, the technologies that occur, they said, look at it from the point of view that what happens when things that don't have the authority to be here they take a structured craft or whatever type of technology. They want to come. They come through on this side. And what happens when a young man or somebody steals a, a car, typically runs from the police? And we believe that at times things that come through, there there is a presence that's after it. Um, they said usually that young gentleman person will crash that car. He can't handle usually the vehicle. He's being chased. And so when they explained it to me like that, that was the first time I ever had could make any sense in my own mind why an advanced technology could crash so many, you know, discs around the world. Um, so I came away with that understanding and, and that made sense to me. And, uh, so I, I, I stick with that. Uh, but then again, you get into the aspect of, of, of what authority is chasing those that don't have the authority to be here. And it's how much, obviously, do governments know about. And when we look in the, the modern world, and as you said, the veil is slipping, but it's not only slipping maybe on that other entity's presence, but it's slipping on how much the governments know. Like, I mean, I don't know if you saw this today already, this crazy story in Mexico about the, the and it's all over the news things about the thousand-year-old alien bodies, um, and and I mean they they've they have unveiled these bodies in a museum, the Mexican government, and you're kind of like what? So governments around the world are kind of releasing information now, like it's more it's turned from a drip into like a slow stream. But you wonder then how much more do they know? Because I think a lot of people who are into ufology realize the American government and the Chinese government of Russia, they know a lot more than they're telling us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and I've had the fortune or misfortune, I would say, to be working with Bruce. Uh, when we worked with a project, we worked with people in the government. And I will tell you, when you sit across the table with people there, you've seen how real it is, uh, how much you can only anticipate how much they do know, which, and it, it, it is mind blowing. And, um, but, it, and, you know, so it's, yes, they, they do know it all. And, and like I said, they work with hand in hand with the Vatican. Uh, so do I think there will ever be disclosure in the way people think there will be? I, I really don't. I think it's going to be forced on them. And, then that gets into another whole subject called the false flag scenario, which... Exactly, yes, yeah. People as smart, I worked with Dr. Carol Rosen, which was an aide to Von Braun, the rocket scientist, and she told me about his... He predicted the false flag scenario, that aliens would be used as an ex... You know, as a, a way out of explaining that. And let me... That would proceed... It would, they would use that as being interplanetary and it's not it's interdimensional and it would come as a benign race of aliens to serve mankind and benefit us and let me tell you our well-being is not their intentions and um 
but and you know even Rod Serling, the 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 one that made the Twilight Zone, um, he knew about this and he had worked with the government to release films and they never they'd always work with them and they were going to and they pull back at the last minute they decide not to so it is a process that's going to happen but I don't believe people are prepared for what, what's going to occur and what the true nature of it is, because um, I truly believe that it's not, you know, aliens from other planets, from Alpha Centauri. It's it's a presence that's going to be here, and it's about control and us serving this control. And and I believe that that's the ancient aliens in the past as they go into a lot of this on their show. The other thing as well, Thomas, is we feel this is our planet, and we think anything that comes through like that is visiting. But what the other idea is that maybe it's their world and they're in another parallel dimension in this world. And maybe they feel like these other people are invading our world through these portals. So, I mean, it could turn out to be in the future that they have been here all the time as well. And we're living side by side in different dimensions. They, they definitely have been here since as long as man's been on Earth, they've been here. And it's the question, though, that, you know, that about us being given the authority because we're, you know, we're spiritual beings in this shell we're in. And but in that being that way that we've been given the authority and and people don't realize uh, giving them authority to be here is not a written letter or you know um our government does giving them the authority to be here is in simple little things as mundane as as people and i in the beginning believe me i would have thrown rocks at somebody like ted would that went there but people that do things like a ouija board and ask for your stuff in that you're giving us the authority uh when you ask this, upon this stuff to come forward, whether it be UFOs, as some do, and they have, you know, on towers, light. It's like Dr. Stephen Greer with this signaling the, the lights and so on. And you're kind of wondering, is that a wise thing to do? Because, I mean, if you take the analogy of when Salem's Lot came out and one of the most interesting scenes was when the vampire is at the window and he has to be invited in. If you invite something in that doesn't have the authority to come in, maybe you're bringing a malevolent force into your world. Exactly. You're exactly right. And and people just, they don't realize this when they're in the process of doing this. And a lot of people think it's fun and games. And uh, and then there's the hitchhiker effect when you do this. You're As you've heard on Skinwalker sometimes, and, and we've experienced that a little bit at Marley, uh, this stuff when you're in that environment can follow you home and you have to deal with it. Uh, so that happens. But, but believe me, it's... The one thing I always tell people, like Ted used to always say, be he'd say, be careful what you wish for all the time. And uh, and we come, we all came to believe that in Marley, what what we'd experience. And uh, so uh, it's real. And I will tell you that it's, I do believe we're reaching a point in time when there is going to be disclosure, not the way people think it's going to happen, but but it's going to happen. More on their terms, maybe. Exactly. That means that maybe we don't know what's coming. Yeah, that's to greater point. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, but, you know, I always warn people that, that people far smarter than I that have researched this. And um, I just, I know through my own personal experience that, believe me, our welfare is not what drives this. Uh intelligence and uh they have their own goal their own agenda and that's what they're working for and it is about control and believe me their control doesn't always benefit you with 
like this video that appeared lately, and this is the the terrible thing about videos and and information we receive now. The first thing you have to be thinking is this real? Is this manipulated? Is it edited? But like I saw this video a few weeks ago where they were showing the Malaysian flight that disappeared and the three craft around it, and then it's like it vanishes into a portal. And then I remember I was talking to my wife and I said, this is the question, you know, because we watch sci-fi series and we watch things like this. Imagine that scenario when you're in a craft and other crafts appear, structured craft appear around the airplane. And then they're suddenly like this, uh, they're, they're doing a maneuver that can open a portal. But then the question is, where does it bring them? And do these people survive? And that's the other question, because I imagine when you look at Skinwalker and when you think of Marley Woods, there are certain portals there that the ancient um, people, the Navajos, the Comanches talked about. But then you wonder if anybody is brought through that portal, can they come back or do they like where does it go? So can you tell us a little about what your belief is about the portals and where they could bring people? We had one case in Marley. We don't really believe it was an abduction. We had a, a young special needs child that was, it was his birthday and his family, farm family, made his favorite breakfast. He had a habit of running outside and this, it was in the winter and he was barefoot all the time. And he ran outside. Family, after a while, was missing. He, they went outside. Uh, they seen his tracks in a light snow again, and they terminated in the middle of the sidewalk. And uh, several days went by. The individual, they actually even sheriff's department drained the pond in the back. They thought he might have fell in there. He didn't. Uh, several days later, there's a knock on the door that one morning, and here's their child comes in. Uh, in, in his frame of mind, no time had passed, and unfortunately, he couldn't describe to any degree where he was, what happened, but he, no frostbite, no physical effects of the winter through the night. And he was looking for his favorite breakfast. Uh, so he was still in that. So as far as where was he? And we truly believe somehow he got in one of these portals or dimensionally he was in another place. But for him, it was just a matter of a few minutes. And for us, it was days. So that's one instance we do have, we truly believe we have of a person coming back from that side, uh, which is rare. But I, I will tell you that it's it's so much more controlled environment thing. And, and we learned in Marley, it was directional. You know, one instance, Ted and I, we, the one area we thought was a portal, we Ted called it the number one portal. We were viewing it for an hour and Ted and I decided we were going to try to drive to it. We knew where it was geographically. And we got in the vehicle. We drove to that area. And the property owner was still at the vantage point on site two. And Ted and I got there. We, we see no artifact of the light around us. And just as a fluke, I stepped on my brake. And the property owner said, you guys got to see it. Your brake lights are right next to the to the light, to the portal. And we said, you're kidding. And he said, no, you, I can see your tail lights right next to where this is. So we learned from that, that instance that it can be very directional. If you're not in the right exact location to see this, uh, you're not going to experience it, which in ufology, that's, that's, Time and time again, that's explained of people seeing craft and lights and no, somebody next to them might not see it. And um, now, if we'd entered that area, could we have went in that portal without realizing it? 
you know, as possible. If these portals are something that can bend space and time or even, you know, change matter, that's the other thing, isn't it? Because that those portals, like when we, you know, the, the I suppose the, the, the way of looking at um, portals is kind of like Stargate, you know, it's a, it's a circle to another dimension or another planet. But in truth, maybe these portals are just space and time that are can move. So maybe they can manipulate them to move wherever they want to. And if they don't want you to go through them, they just move the portal. You know, who knows? And, you know, people say that, they always say, well, if you believe it's interdimensional, you don't believe in life on other planets and that we'll ever see. I said, no, I didn't say that. I, I, I truly believe it's only the dimensional way that because I had it broke my heart. Uh, Stanton Freeman, the nuclear physicist, which I'm sure you're, he told me one time, explained it. He, and I was a Star Trek fan, you know, when I was young. I love Star Trek and warp speed and all that. And and Stan broke my heart when he told me, he said, well, Tom, it's never going to work that way. And I said, why, Stan? Why do you? And he goes, he said, you don't realize the physics of it. He said, he said, to take an object the size of a pea to light speed, to drive at light speed right now would take the combined energy output of the earth for a hundred years. And he said, do you think that's practical? Now we're going to have a starship with that capability. So what could I say? You know, maybe other interdimensional beings have a different type of physics because, you know, like every different planet has its own gravity, has its own physics. And maybe other dimensions have different physics, too. So if you consider like, you know, those with the Nimitz and all of these things that happened with them seeing the Tic Tac and everything and how these objects were able to move, it's beyond our understanding that, you know, we have we have craft that can fly at 2,000 miles an hour, but yes, it can turn on a dime, but these objects can. Right, and and there again, the physics of the nature of, this, of the beast is that in one of, if we could do that, any living entity in that craft would be turned to jelly, you know, from the G-force. So, but the physics of their craft that comes across is such that from what I had explained to me again is that their disc and the reason they're able to sometimes enter water, high speed, come out, sometimes not even make a ripple. Um, they have a, a plasma envelope around the craft. And if inside that structure and that craft and that envelope, they have their own, it's their own G-force, their own physics, which doesn't apply to our side. Now, a lot of people ask, well, if we have crashed discs, which I, I've dealt with people, I know we do have, and the government actually admitted this, they're coming back on it now, but yes, they do have crashed debris of not of this earth. And But some of the alloys and metals in these craft and materials, people ask, well, how come we don't have, if we know that the down engineered, back engineered this, why don't we have a fleet of these things? Well, there again, the interdimensional ability is that three of the key elements, one in, in particular that I'm told is it's a superconductor that uh, it's like 30 times the conductivity of gold and th three times the weight. But that element doesn't exist on this side. It only exists on the other side. So we can only do with what limited amounts we have here that came through. So, and there's really no, they, they've made attempts to work around that uh, through superconducting elements, you know, uh, cryogenics and things, but they really can't, they can't recreate that because they don't have that element. And, and where do you go to mine this stuff or make it? It's like if we went back in time, yeah, 
and you met the cavemen or the Bronze Age men and, and they were trying to do a job and you said, oh, we can do this job much faster and much easier. And they're like, do it first. And you'd say, I don't have my tools. It's a bit like that because we we may have some of the components, but we don't have all of the components to make it happen. That You have limitations, you know. When we talk about Robert Bigelow, because this is something, whenever I watch Skinwalker and, you know, and, and the mention of Bigelow Aerospace and everything, I kind of have this thing in my thinking that Robert Bigelow had this ranch, you know, and then he sold the ranch and put his... His aerospace in um, empire grew. So I always say to my wife, I believe he got something from this ranch, from Skinwalker, that benefited his company. Now, I could be completely wrong, but I always believe that he came away knowing more than he could ever tell anybody. But maybe between him and the government, there was something there that benefited him too. Because obviously, if you go into aerospace and you go into, you know, uh, future craft and things like this, you have to have some technology. So I always feel that maybe he found something or found some kind of radiation technology there. Yeah, you know, he did form a bond. Uh, he did several contracts, of course, the inflatable habitats, which are actually on the International Space Station now. But but they Bigelow Aerospace does have a lot of technology they've worked with and back engineered. Um, so I, I truly believe that I, I will say that I don't think the man would have gave anything up if he if he wouldn't have got to the bottom of it. So uh, uh, but but yet again, there's a lot of things there that. Uh, he he wanted to move on in that point in his part that point in his life and um but i i still think there's a lot to be gained there and and they're doing incredible work there and and you know the only thing that i'll say that it made it easier for us and ted's ted's era was you know back documenting and filming back in that day was so much easier because now between the what they call deep fake AI and you know even the drone technology you literally like you expressed you can't believe anything you see anymore yeah exactly yeah and they also believe if we do have a false flag from any of the governments that they will be in this holographic form because if i look out my window and there's a ufo floating between the buildings and i can't touch it maybe i don't know if it's really there oh yeah i mean it goes back into the days you know desert storm darpa and they were doing things people don't know the half of what you you know, uh, Schwarzkopf, they had a, they took over a lot of things in an amazing amount of time. And I will tell you, there was a lot of technology used on those people and holographic and things that have never come to light that, um, and, and that was in the, in its infancy. I mean, you can only imagine, uh, there are things, Project Bluebeam and different things now that, uh, and there's other agencies of the government right now that are working on things that you can't even imagine, you know, and, and you literally cannot tell it. No. And, you know, now with all of these fires in Hawaii and everything and, and project, that project DARPA has kind of been looked at in a funny light as to say, what's the situation there? Were these fires started? What, what technology that di direct energy weapons? I mean, the weapons that these governments can use and to, you know, manipulate situations. But the problem is it's not for the benefit of mankind. It's to manipulate a situation so the elite can benefit. And this is, 
I think, the problem because governments can tend to work with private entities for power, for greed, for different things. So we don't know what kind of technology that's reverse engineered could show its face in the future. Well, you're exactly right. And I, I try to be like Ted. I try to stay upbeat on this and not always go into the dark side of it. But I will tell you that I, I truly believe there are people in our government working with this intelligence when the false flag occurs that uh, they're in cahoots with these with this entity, this intelligence. And things are being done, like you mentioned, uh, for control. And there, there are people on this side that have fooled themselves in believing that they're going to be part of this if they help initiate this process. And let me tell you, they're going to be the first ones taken out because they know the truth. So they know the truth. Yeah. And what do you give to the belief then that, you know, there are beings living amongst us who are hybrids? And I, I don't really mean like the whole reptilian thing, but I mean, the, the the point is that I always say to my wife, we could get a shock when we discover that aliens look just like us or can can look like us. So the thing about it is that maybe there are entities living amongst us who, who appear like us, but are not us. I'll tell you, I truly believe that. And it goes back, you know, who Whoever, you can go into your own beliefs or religious beliefs, but uh, you can go into the Nephilim and uh, the return. And I truly believe, for lack of a better word, that's what's going to occur. And if you go into the Apocrypha, you know, the, the Book of Enoch and different manuals, you know, that are taken out and you get into their original, the Coin Greek and ancient Hebrew and Aramaic languages, which I've been fortunate to know some theologians that that was their job that. They studied this, and uh, and they predicted all this in in the religious window. So it all comes around full circle. And like like I always said, I don't think most people have a clue of what's going to occur. You know, the thing about it is, if someone does come across somebody who they believe is not a non-human entity, probably by that time it's too late anyway. Because like you said, if they are of a much superior intelligence to us and they discover we learn things about them, they have a choice. They can get rid of us. They can, you know... And, you know, I saw something a few months ago, which made me think as well, that somebody had overlaid a map of all of the cave systems in America, and they had also overlaid the map of all the missing persons cases. And most of the cases were based around these underground cave systems. So that makes you think as well, is that a coincidence or do people go missing because maybe there are other entities or that malevolent forces using these underground cave systems to conceal themselves. You know, that, that goes into a, another part of Ted's research that he devoted a great deal of his life to and actually traveled to Slovakia three times. We were, we were going to go back. I don't know if you're familiar with Moonshaft. The Moonshaft. And that's kind of where I'm going with this, I suppose. Yeah. And... And, you know, just quite briefly, I'll give you a very quick synopsis. You know, um, that was an artifact that was found. Uh, Anton Hurek was a, came from a family that had, they mined uranium. Uh, even Madame Curie went, got her first uranium from his family. But when World War II happened, he became part, the Nazis took his territory, his home, the mines, everything. Um, he actually joined the underground and, became a captain in the underground. And anyway, he escaped his men. Two of them were shot and he escaped from the Nazis and they were wounded. And he found in Slovakia, a sheep herder hid him in this cave and put him in the cave mouth. And even to this day, Slovakia was against the law 
to explore caves. And that's quite a unique thing, but it is. Um, but the, the sheep herder told him, don't explore the cave, stay in the mouth. And he gave him the blessing and let they bring, they bring him food and bandages. And in the process, Anton Horik, which was a mining en- engineer, he knew what should be in underground and what shouldn't. And uh, he spoke three languages, And uh, but he explored this cave. One day he gets back in there and he finds a crescent black, like a black onyx polished surface which appeared to be man-made. He found a crack in it, crawled through the crack with his crude mining light. He'd seen up and down. He couldn't see the end of this structure. Uh, while in there, he dug over a period of days down in the debris in the in the cave, found fossils, cave bear teeth in this thing, uh, which it, and it had stalactites, stalagmites growing on it, which denotes the age of this thing. And yeah. when he got to the bottom digging in this thing, he discovers a one-inch metal grid, wavy grid pattern, and the warm air came up, blew the dust in his face, and he put his ear down on this grid, and he describes the sound of heavy turbines running in this thing. So... This makes absolutely no sense. He knew this shouldn't be there for no reason possible. But yet here's a piece of equipment running, self-maintaining structure in there. Uh, no possible reason. So what could this thing be? So he actually got out. The Nazis carpet bombed the area. He escaped. Um, after the war, he tried to find the cave back, got back there. Uh, because of the bombing, did a cave down part of the thing. He couldn't get back there all the way. Ted actually found the cave through the original family that led him to this cave. And um, Ted was in it three times. He knew it, it would take excavation. And his last attempt, uh, the Russians were in the area heavily trying to find. They, and all the military, I might add, knew of this thing, how they knew it. Even Adolf Hitler knew about this, which is why Adolf Hitler formed his first team of Spitlunkers. And, and that goes into the whole Indiana Jones things, I will tell you. But, um, but, but Ted got back there. He knew it would take a great amount of resource to excavate this. At one point, he even worked with National Geographic and um, other individuals in this country. And then again, the Russians took over in that area. He couldn't get back. So we had actually formed an alliance, Ted had farmed, and we were going to get back there. It got Russian involvement again, and they warned us the people that lived there said, now's not a good time. So then they let us know that it opened up again. And actually, I was working with Ben Hansen from UFO Witness, and we had planned to get back there and do a documentary on this. And then Again, what happens with the Russians? They invade, uh, they hadn't invaded Slovakia yet, but there was mass amounts of migrants, uh, people leaving the area, you know, from the Ukraine. And, uh, and the people in Slovakia actually really felt that the Russians were in that area heavily. So there again, the geopolitical climate, we were locked out of getting back there again. Uh, but I will tell you that there's several more of these objects been found around the world. Um, and we actually, Ted found out of two, one in particular, he nailed down a location and was in the process of dealing with a family. It was a small family owned piece of ground that had a coal mine. Uh, there again, right before he was able to get back to this one that investigated, uh, the government came in and bought out their total property, the coal mine, everything, and locked it out. So no one is allowed in and out of that hole. So they were effectively trying to stop investigations. Exactly. So, so many times in the past, uh, the government in, involved in this locks the door. When we look at Skinwalker now, I always feel 
whenever they're trying to drill into the ground and everything, there's something underground. So that sounds very similar to that moonshaft project, doesn't it? Because there's something down there that's emitting radiation. There's something down there that doesn't want to be penetrated. And it's funny how it's in that mesa. And, you know, and, and maybe even in Marley Woods, maybe there's something buried under Marley Woods. Did you ever come across something like that? We explored caves. You know, there were some large cave complexes in Marley. Some of the people, locals, had thought they'd seen light balls come in and out. And we actually could never find anything, uh, you know, with our with any type of technology that was under there. So, you know, did we not go deep enough or what was the reason? It's hard to say. Even now, I suppose, right now, the technology they have on Skinwalker is more advanced than the technology you were using. Oh, yeah. But even for them now, it presents great difficulty getting down into the ground, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, it's incredible that had we had the technology, they had it Skinwalker. And in just a little instant, like with, with Ben Hampson, when we were out there at Site 2 in Marley, he had one of the state-of-the-art thermal in- imaging units that uh, military-grade, really a great piece of equipment. Uh, and Ben noticed on the one deer stand, he said, he said, Tom, is that an animal or what is that? And from my experience, I said, no, Ben, that's spherical. And um, it looks like what we called a light bulb starting. Now, I don't know if we caught it coming out dimensionally, but it traveled across and we had some of us had night vision and his crew was on the ground. They could not see it with night vision. You could not see it with a naked eye. We could see it with a thermal imaging unit and it traveled across and he sent his people out to that area and told them exactly where it was. They couldn't see it. They had no knowledge of it being there. So had we had that piece of thermal imaging equipment, just that alone, how many times could we perceive this thing starting before it became in our in our optics, you know, in our frequency range? It's fascinating, isn't it? All of these places that are now appearing. And, and for me, you know, I, I would love to see more work being carried out at Marley Woods and for to be presented in more documentaries and more TV shows and things. Because the great thing about, you know, Skinwalker or any of these kind of things is, you know, we can't all go to that area and investigate. So it give, it brings it into your home. And if you have an interest in any of these kind of things, it just teaches you a little more about it. Now, I know people say, Oh, this television, it's entertainment, it's reality TV. But the truth is, you know, there's no smoke without fire. There are things happening in the world, strange things. And, you know, who knows what could happen again in Marley Woods, no? Right. It's unbelievable. And and like I said, you know, in the beginning that uh, Beyond Skinwalker was due to be our show. Uh, site, when we were out at Site 2 with Ben Hans on UFO Witness, uh, you know, when we wrapped that show up, I was the last one to be, leave the property that night or morning. I made sure the cabin was locked. All the lights were off. The water was off. Uh, then three weeks later, after we filmed that, the property on it, we had scheduled so much to do out there, investigations. And we were going to have a try to get an almost permanent presence out there to work with. And um uh, three weeks after that happened, I was called by the family that the property owner who was a great older gentleman, loved us and wanted to do so much more. He had had a stroke on the property and died out there. And the family then went on to tell me that uh, they said, well, Tom, he, he was a little disappointed in you. And I, 
I said, well, you know, and I, I so regret not calling the man the next day when I got home. Uh, and I said, well, why was that? And he said, well, the next morning when he went out there, he said, the state you left the cabin, he said, the doors were all open and the lights were on and the water was running. And I, I reassured the family. I said, look, I had all that nailed down. That was, and he said, well, I think, I think he knew that. And the family said, I, so there again, this intelligence, this phenomena. It was showing it had the upper hand. It exactly knew what I did out there. And it, the one thing it, it knew that I would know, it went behind my back and did everything I did. It undid. Tell me then when Ted Phillips died, you know, because I don't know how long before that you had finished working with him. So was that a hard process for you as well to finish working with Ted? Ted passed away March 10th of 20. And it was, he had a, uh, a lot of health issues over the years and it was a natural process it didn't come as a surprise but it was still hard to, and at times i still you know i want to draw upon that intellect and his help and uh and i you know i no way felt qualified to do his work or carry on but but i was a senior team member and others in the team had went on to do other things so just quite frankly and uh, i was asked to do it and i i just couldn't turn my back on it and so so you know we've done our best of course with limited resources uh we we could have done so much more and we had scheduled and but like i said we're working on one of the team members went on to do things he's worked with sci-fi network now done movies and and we're we're working on starting this fall probably a feature film on Ted's life, Marley Woods, and and myself and the team. And so, and I, I'll be so glad to get that out there because, quite frankly, I don't think that our people are going to believe all the realm, all the different aspects of this that it goes in and touches and. All we experienced out there, which were a lot of bad health effects, myself and Ted included, went through. And I still live with health effects that I received from what we felt microwave. So it does happen and it's real, but I'm looking forward to being able to share it in that way. And I'm still working with a property owner at Site 1, maybe to get back out there and do something. But after there was a fatality out there, his family, they decided that usually like Skinwalker, when strangers would be on the place, that's when bad things would happen. And just like Skinwalker, when they dig, uh, we found in Marley, when a lot of strangers show up, individuals that it's not kind of go through a process of being out there. And uh, when you dump a lot of people in that environment, it seems like the entity phenomenon, it doesn't like this. And the family talked to property owner site one. He's an elderly man and family. And uh, they decided that they didn't want any part of this. Uh, so two weeks before we were due to start shooting, I, I can tell you when I had to get back to the producer, I was not a very well-liked man with the investment they put in getting out there. And two weeks before we were going to shoot, I had to tell them it was all off. So you can imagine where I was. <laughs> And that's a shame because if the family feel that there's too much interference and it's affecting their daily life, it's a problem, isn't it? And, you know, a lot of a lot of these farms or places, maybe now they're not inhabited. Like when we look at Skinwalker, you know, it's not that anybody was really living there. There was caretakers and stuff. But when you have a family living there and then this malevolent presence shows its face more, the more people are around, you can see how they'd say, OK, enough is enough. Oh, yeah. Site two is shared with 
three family members in their families, which is around 11 to 1,200 acres. It usually maintains 1,100 acres. And the other ranch is approaching eight 800 acres. So you're dealing with a lot of real estate there, you know. Yeah, of course. It's really interesting, you know, and I mean, these things are so deep. There's so much to it. And in some ways, you can see how, like, as we said, the paranormal UAP, UFOs, you can see how that's connected and it's maybe showing more how it's connected nowadays. But at the same time, it's kind of there's so many mysteries in the world that we may never have the answers because whatever it is doesn't want us to have the answer. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I do feel that we're coming into a time period, though, where, you know, this, depending on what your religious beliefs are, that uh, we are coming into a time, though, like I said, and, and I can draw upon people I know in the field that when I say the dimensional boundaries are weakening, it's it's not just a little bit of my belief. It's it's authenticated by things that are going on, not only in Missouri, but nationwide and worldwide. So I, I do believe we're in it. We're coming into a new realm, and uh, but like I said, disclosure. I I do believe I go back to what Ted said: be careful what you wish for, because a lot of people want all disclosure and want to know it all. You know, Thomas, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We could sit and talk about this for hours because there's so much. But thank you for you know we've gone over a lot of things there, and I always say you know when I have an interesting guest and there's so much more to tell, I always say you know we we possibly in the future we'll get you on again, and definitely if you know you have um things that come out, we'll get you on to talk about those as well. So. I want to thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And all we can say is best of luck with future projects. Oh, thank you much. It's been a pleasure and I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much, Mr. Thomas M. Ferrario. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Thomas M. Ferrario. That was an amazing interview and uh, you gave us some great facts about Marley Woods, about Ted Phillips and about your work with UFO research and about your dive career and it was just fascinating. So it was lovely to hear all those stories and I like to hear more mysteries. It's a, a, a passion of mine and it would be great if we could prove some of these things one day. But, you know... In the meantime, it's great to talk to people who are involved in this world and uh, we want to thank you, Thomas, for your great work and commend you for being such a great researcher in this field and long may it continue. So thank you very much, Mr. Thomas M. Ferrario. Okay, everybody, thank you for listening to the podcast. My name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast and we hope you're enjoying the shows. Spread the word, tell your friends and stay tuned for more amazing guests over the next few months. And until we meet again, look after yourself, your family. Take care. Bye-bye.